Well, Dan Leroy is an author, journalist, and teacher who's been the director of writing and publishing department for Sophia Institute. Uh, he's uh, writing about music and politics, has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, The Village Voice, Alternate Press, Alternative Press, Esquire.com, and National Review Online. In his new book, Liberty's Lions, Dan gets right to the point by gathering together in one place and for the first time the significant contributions of Catholics to the American Revolution. Dan, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, it's great having you here on the, uh, I guess, uh, just a few days after our country celebrated its 245th birthday, talking about the American Revolution. I went to Catholic school, Dan, and and I learned about Archbishop John Carroll, uh, the first bishop, uh, and then I, I think we also learned that there was a Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, also named Carol. But there's so much more than just that as far as Catholics during the Revolutionary period, and that's what the book is about. So tell us a little bit about what what inspired you to write it and uh, some maybe even some facts that, that surprised you. That's a, It's a great question, and there are two answers that I'm really happy to give in response to that. The first place that the book came from is I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where history was valued. My mom is a great historian, a great genealogist, and she always stressed to my brother and me the importance of knowing where you come from and and knowing how one historical event leads to another. Mm -hmm. The other place that the book came from is spending some time in the Perpetual Adoration Chapel at my home parish of St. Monica in the Diocese of Pittsburgh. We're lucky to have a chapel like this. I was reading a couple of years ago in the chapel and came across a column by Professor Anthony Esselin uh, talking about one of the people mentioned in Liberty's Lines, Kazimierz Pulaski, the great Polish revolutionary. And at the end of this column, Professor Esselin said, you know, there's some other Catholics who are significant to the revolutionary cause. I went looking for the book to find out where I could learn about all this in one place. It didn't exist, and so I set out to try to write it. But I also wanted to mention, since you talked about learning about Archbishop Carroll and his cousin Charles Carroll, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, and for a long time Catholics, I think, in the larger culture have been told that they didn't really play a, a big role in the Revolution. And a lot of that, I think, is just a numbers game. When we look at the numbers, they tell us that there were something like twenty-four to 30,000 uh, Catholics during the Revolutionary Year, that's a really small percentage, less than 2% of the colonial population. And on that basis, I think people have discounted Catholic contributions. But Catholics during the Revolution were leaders militarily, they were leaders economically, they were leaders intellectually, and of course they were leaders spiritually at a time when the Church was really under persecution in the colonies. Well, that's something I think a lot of people don't realize. Uh, you know, we think of when we uh, here on the East Coast, especially. You know, there's every big city has churches every other corner, but that was from the from the European immigration at the turn of the century. But prior to that, uh, tell us a little bit about the church in colonial times. You say it's under persecution. In what ways? Well, for one thing, as you mentioned, you know, we we see the kind of ubiquity of churches today, and we think that it was always so, and it really wasn't. During the colonial era, this is still a thing that surprises me. You asked me a moment ago about something I learned that surprised me. This is one of those things. During to and up to the the Revolution, only two places in the whole British Empire where you could publicly 
attend a mass. And those were both in Philadelphia, probably not too far from you guys, mm-hmm. uh, Old St. Joseph's and Old St. Mary's right down the street. Only two places. Every place else, if you attend a mass, you are attending a mass that is being conducted by a circuit-riding priest, often they're Jesuits. One of them, from not too far away there, Father Ferdinand Farmer, is mentioned in the book, and he made lots and lots of travels to take the faith to people. But you are doing all this kind of undercover, because in most places you are forbidden by law from celebrating a Mass. And these priests like Father Farmer, like Archbishop Carroll, back when he was just Father Carroll, and was also a circuit rider. Uh, people uh, like Father Pierre Gibault out west, up on, and down the Mississippi. A lot of these priests are kind of taking things into their own hands, their own lives in some cases, because Catholics are persecuted, and that persecution extends to the celebration of the Mass. Other ways Catholics are, are persecuted during this era. In most places, they can't vote. They can't hold public office. If you want your child to have a, a good Catholic education, you have to send them overseas because there's no place like that in the colonies. And just to add insult to injury, in Maryland, for example, which is supposedly the most religiously tolerant of all the colonies, if you want to send your child to a place like St. Omer in Belgium to, uh, to receive that Catholic education, you have to put a 10- or 11-year-old kid mm. on a ship to undertake a super dangerous Atlantic crossing, which they may not survive. And to do that for the privilege of, of putting your child at risk in that way, you have to pay an exorbitant amount of tax, 100 pounds mm. in Maryland, just for the, the privilege of sending your child overseas to be educated. So, you know, when we talk about some of the uh, contemporary parallels to this book, and we talk about the idea of school choice, uh, there's an example of school choice and how uh, opponents of school choice made it very difficult during the colonial era, uh, just as they make it very difficult for a lot of people today. My goodness, Dan, that is that is fascinating and shocking all at the same time. Um, I can't wait to read this. <laughs> so see, we learn something every day. But even in Philadelphia, when it was apparently, you know, there was a little bit more freedom where they could go to the parish. I've visited both of the, um, those churches, which are gorgeous, Old St. Mary's and Old St. Joseph's. When you try to find Old St. Joseph's, it's said, <laughs> have you been there? Yes. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, I've got to be I've passing it. And- yeah, and it's like set back, and it's yeah. almost hidden. You go into someone's courtyard, and then there's these stairs by this brick wall. The next thing you know, you're inside the church. I think, where did you don't see, like you don't see it from the outside? And and that I'm so glad you brought that up because I was able to visit both of those churches, and Old Saint Joseph's is hidden yeah. in that way deliberately yes. because even in the colony of Pennsylvania, even in this place where Again, religious tolerance is mentioned in the Charter, and we have this idea that William Penn was this exemplar of religious tolerance. Mm. Uh, not not always. No, not totally. so much. And, and yeah. actually, the, the Church was hidden by design, because in a couple of instances, there, there were attacks on the Church. Uh, people tried to burn it down. Uh, the early days of Old St. Joseph's really had to be conducted in, in secrecy, and there were a lot of complaints about the papists. Uh, having Mass 
Uh, and those complaints got all the way to William Penn. And when William Penn was under duress in England, which he was sometimes, that duress filtered its way back across the ocean to Catholics in Pennsylvania. Mm. Wow. You know, I think about some of these early founders, and here they come here because they want to establish a different sort of country. They want uh, freedom. They embrace, you know, equality. I'm thinking of Ben Franklin, John Adams, George Washington, these great founders. But what did they, do you address, what do they think of Catholicism? Here where you think, oh, they're going to be more tolerant. How did they feel about uh, the Catholics? (laughs) Not always. I think the founders kind of run along a continuum. At one end of the continuum, you have some pretty familiar names, folks like Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Samuel Adams, who really made no bones about the fact that they uh, did not view the Catholic Church favorably mm-hmm. at all. You have folks like John Adams, if you move back uh, across this continuum, who are skeptical, who are kind of perplexed by the workings of the, the Catholic Church. Uh, if you move further, then you have someone like Ben Franklin, who is very wise because he's circumspect. He, he definitely, uh, I think, doesn't have a lot of truck with the beliefs of the Catholic Church, but he's smart enough to keep this under wraps. The one guy who's different is at the other end of the continuum, and that's George Washington. He gets a chapter in Liberty Vines because of this, because Washington, unlike all the other founders, is not just tolerant in word, he's also tolerant in deed. One of the first things that he does when he takes over as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army is he interrupts this long-standing tradition throughout the Northeast called Pope's Night. Sounds like a fun Catholic evening, but it really <laughs> isn't. It's an excuse to get drunk and burn the Pope in effigy and oh indulge my. in as much virulent public anti-Catholicism as anybody could wish. Washington takes over and says, look, we got to stop this because mm-hmm. we cannot ask our fellow citizens who are Catholic to join our cause if we're going to insult them publicly mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. Catholics always remembered Washington didn't just talk the talk. He also walked the walk. Mm-hmm. That's, that is good to know. Again, we're talking with Dan Leroy. Uh, the book is called Liberty's Lions. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, and that's sophiainstitute.com, uh, their website. I find it very fascinating, Dan, because as, you, as, we're, as you're telling these, uh, giving us this information about the colonial days, I guess we, we never really think, as Cheryl said earlier, never really think about the church under persecution in this country. In America, right. Yet, uh, and I think it, it extended beyond even colonial times, and it, because I know here in Philadelphia, the Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul, when they when they were building it, they they if you go there now, you'll see the stained glass windows are all at the very, very top of the building, because as they were building it, originally, people were breaking the windows. <laughs> right, yeah, they couldn't, uh, there was more destruction than construction. Well, it's a funny thing, because the revolutionary era and the contributions of Catholics to the successful American Revolution did a thing that I I think a lot of people maybe don't realize. They bought this brand-new church in America some time, because there's a period that follows the Revolution and extends somewhere into the early part of the 19th century, where Catholics have proven their mettle, so to speak. They have been the co-conspirators, if you will, in the revolution. And so there's this kind of period of calm at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century. And it's this period that really allows 
then bishop and later archbishop John Carroll to build this church. Now, hard times come again later with the immigration that happens toward the middle of the 19th century with the rise of groups like the Know Nothing. So Catholics would face persecution again. But there's this little period of calm, about 30 or 40 years following the revolution, where the church is kind of free to, to build itself into a, a structure that could accommodate later all of these folks who came in from Italy, from Ireland, from other places in Europe. So the revolution kind of paid a, another dividend because Catholic contributions really allowed the brand new church in America to have this breathing room that it needed to find its feet. Also covered in your book, Dan, is the role of American Catholics in the first slave revolt. Tell us a little bit about that. It's a, another chapter that kind of gets short shrift, I think. It happened in 1739 along the Stono River in South Carolina. Uh, it's really the only large-scale slave revolt up to the Revolution, uh, and really after the Revolution as well. But you have a, a group of slaves, many of whom are Congolese. Some of this group were Catholic, and there is... This is something that academics kind of debate about, but I think there's a lot of compelling evidence that supports this idea. There is a belief that some of what animated this slave revolt along the Stono River was uh, Marian veneration, that these Catholic Congolese slaves were undertaking this revolt in part because of their devotion to the Virgin Mary. Now, the revolt in itself wasn't a great success. Most of the slaves were either captured or killed. A few of them did make their way to Spanish Florida, where they presumably became free, because that was a, a, a colony where uh, a, a Catholic could find freedom, and, and even a, a former slave could find freedom. But most of them didn't make it. But it's this Marian veneration part of this revolt that I think is the, the fascinating thing, because it kind of begs the question, why would these slaves do what they did, really not having great chances of success, why would they do it? And, and one of the beliefs is that they did it in, in part because they believed that the Virgin Mary would be there to protect them and, and kind of bless this revolt. It's a complicated story. It, it's a slave revolt if there were people killed on both sides. The slaves uh, certainly killed some of the the South Carolinians, so it, it's not a real pretty or, or perfect story in any sense, but we do believe, I do believe, and some other academics believe, that the, the Marian part of this is a significant component. Well, again, beautiful and, and very, very interesting. And I, Friends, the book is called Liberty's Lions. We've been talking with the author, uh, Dan Leroy, and it's published by Sophia Institute Press. Their web address is sophiainstitute.com. And uh, it's just great to hear in, in the book, and, and you'll read, as Dan put it together, uh, just how important it was uh, for, and to the country for the Catholics then who were doing such great things during the Revolution uh, and, and in those times and uh, why they did it and the, the uh, outcome and the effect. So, Dan, thank you so much for being with us, but for writing the book. It's very, very interesting, and, and uh, it's, it's just great, great information for us. So you have to get the book. What would the revolution have been like without these Catholics? Now, to answer that question, you have to read the book. 
And there you go. <laughs> Dan, fascinating, brilliant. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Well, God bless you. And, and uh, again, friends, the book is called Liberty's Lions. SophieInstitute.com is the web address. Dan Leroy, thank you so much for being with us today. God bless you. Keep up the great work. God bless you as well. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.